0: My name is Terry O'Reilly. Once upon a time, bigger meant better. For instance, have a look around here. Sunday, June 18th, 1815, near the main road to Brussels in Waterloo, Belgium. Up there is the army of Napoleon Bonaparte. Over there are the Prussians. And way over there, the chap with the big schnoz, That would be the Duke of Wellington commanding a multinational army. In those days, infantries would often march in lines, a long, solid, imposing wall of force. They'd fire in single, frightening volleys. When men fell, others would close ranks to fill the holes in the line and continue. By assembling and marching in the open, the bigger force would hope to unnerve its opponent by its sheer size. But a very unfunny thing happened to war in the 20th century. The gadgetry of war made it possible to cut down a line of advancing infantry in less time than I need to read this sentence. Open field marching had become a distant memory. The bold British scarlet tunic gave way to greys and khaki, and to camouflage, a French slang term from the Italian camuffare, meaning disguise. A brass show of force gave way to stealth and caution, trench warfare, strike and fade assaults, and long range artillery. Showing force in the open only provided the enemy with a target. Big, on the battlefield, had become a liability. It looks like an ordinary day in the USA, but in the city of Flint, Michigan, all is excitement, even the small fryer buzzing. Western industry, meanwhile, followed a remarkably similar storyline. Among industries and brands, biggest meant best. Yes, sir, there's excitement from coast to coast on this day. Railways and the telegraph enabled national brands to stretch across continents an entire nation might gauge its health by that of its corporate giants, the CPR, or U.S. Steel, or General Motors. A day of achievement for the whole USA. For on this day, General Motors is building its 50 millionth car. Then, within a generation, everything has changed. Like the mighty armies of old, the great captains of industry have become a target to activists, satirists, and frustrated consumers. As the mightiest brands watched helplessly, rebellious consumers drained the air from their tires. Join me over the next few minutes as we look up, look way up, to find out why giant killing has become such a popular consumer pastime and why big has become such a liability in the age of persuasion. I want chicken. I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, Donnie. That's us! Placing me the ball. Hey, great. A toothpaste goodbye, Captain. I can't believe I ate that whole... Highly advanced, sturdy as a rock, durable cannon, AP300 electronic typewriter. Terry O'Reilly, and the Age of Persuasion. <laughs> there you go again. This is Carrefour, part of a French-owned hypermarket chain. One-stop shopping for soup, boxer shorts, oven cleaner, prescription drugs, and a lube job. All sous ou um, même toit. The name means crossroads. Last year, Carrefour made just south of hundred billion dollars. Yet, when you visit your video store, you won't likely find films slamming Carrefour for its labor practices or predatory pricing. Your library won't contain books measuring the morality of its practices. It's rarely the source of petitions or protests. Don't get me wrong, All is not Bordeaux and baguettes in the land of Carrefour. It's just that, despite its size, it's not a target for world irritation. Because, as big as it is, Carrefour is the second biggest retailer in the world. It's my son's... My daughter's laptop from Walmart. Yep, the largest retailer in the world, also ranked number one on the 2007 Fortune Global 500 list. It is the largest private employer in the world. The fourth largest commercial employer behind the Chinese army, the British National Health Service, and the Indian Railways. It's Walmart. That's right, Walmart. There was a time when number one made you a status symbol. Hence the glory days of the CPR, US Steel, and Standard Oil. But in the age of persuasion, being the biggest makes you a target. There's never been a company like it. Walmart is probably the broadest and most powerful company in U.S. business history. It inspires documentaries and stacks of books, critical, laudatory, and analytical. It's a flashpoint for dozens of causes and hundreds of protests. It's widely vilified, except, of course, by the sea of customers who spent $350 billion there in 2007. Tonight on Frontline, is Walmart good for America? Though Carrefour's revenues were more than 25% of those of Walmart, Carrefour will not draw a similar proportion of criticism. That's not how being number one works. The downside is that you are in perpetual defense mode. Ask Mike Tyson. His eye is really absolutely closed. On the left side. There's an interesting theory that a heavyweight champion becomes a 25% better fighter the day he lands the title. The reason? His personal confidence skyrockets. Of course, that can go to your head, too. When Mike Tyson kept knocking out all challengers inside of three rounds, he stopped training as hard. After all, why bother? Then he met Buster Douglas in Tokyo. these down for the first time in his career. In boxing, as in war, and most competitive sports, and especially in the world of persuasion, remaining on top means knowing how to defend a lead. I've gone a lot of great Hard to believe that just a couple of generations back, being number one was the best gig on the planet. Through most of the 20th century, every company wanted to be number one when it grew up. The wheels of industry drove countries. What was good for GM was good for America. Industry defined major centers, from steel towns to mill towns, to cities famous for sugar beets or tomatoes or fishing. The great mines built entire communities from scratch and governed its people. Brand giants were benevolent patriarchs and consumers their beloved children. And father always knew best. A delicate satin or belting material for industry. Captains of industry apologized for nothing. The larger and mightier an industry, the more virtuous it seemed. In more than 2,000 yarn and fabric producing and finishing plants, these people make the materials and furnish the inspiration for tens of thousands of designers, cutters, clothing manufacturers, and distributors, who in turn stock the shelves of hundreds of thousands of stores to satisfy the needs of America's millions. Big brands were never so sovereign, never so respected as when they bankrolled broadcast. The idol-worshipping public tuned in to adore Crosby and Benny and Hope, Burns and Allen, and Orson Welles, all of whom bowed in turn to their sponsors. The makers of Campbell Soups present the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. All right, everything you ordered. In the world of broadcast, Rob Petrie might be wary of Alan Brady, but he was warier still of Alan Brady's sponsor. Rob, if I'd known this was going to make you so nervous, I'd never have arranged this dinner, sponsor or not. Well, I'm not nervous. It'll be right, darling. After all, Mr. Bermont is just another man. Not just another man, he's a very important man. He's my sponsor. Industry on Parade. In time, many big businesses took their eye off the consumer and began focusing on themselves. Here's a scene that has long since ceased causing any surprise. The women folk washing dishes made of plastic. Dishes that bounce when they drop to the floor. Hard to realize it, but it was only 10 years ago that the first pound of polyesterine plastic was sold. And it was sold by Arnold Martinelli at left. As companies grow, they must devote more of their energy to simply standing up under their own weight. By necessity, they focus inward on their own workings. And by reaching out to the masses, they lose intimate contact with the individual. A trend one winery fought with an ingenious, disarming campaign by one of the most beautiful minds in my trade, Mr. Hal Reiney. Hello. To show you why we believe our Bartles and James premium wine coolers are the best-tasting coolers of all, we wanted to remind you just how much Ed knows about fruit. Ed knows grapes. Ed knows black cherries. <laughs> Ed knows pineapples. Ed knows berries. Broccoli? <laughs> no. Well, I think that proves Ed certainly knows his fruit. So please try our great-tasting Bartles and James coolers, and thank you for your support. Rhyne's six-year campaign brought a big winery brand away from its ivory tower and down here onto the front porch. In this case, they played against mega brand Nike and its then-popular Bow Nose campaign. You didn't need to believe that Bartles and James was genuinely small and folksy. All Riney needed was to dispel any feeling that the product flowed from a cold, humorless conglomerate. Yet some very rough seas were ahead for big brands, and it would take even more than the genius of Hal Riney to weather the storm. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is The Age of Persuasion. Remember the 60s and 70s for whatever you like. In the age of persuasion, it might be best remembered as the time when the giants came toppling down. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. The torch had been passed to a new generation, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of its ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of human rights. And they had taught their children to ask questions. Big business, the fuzz, and the military became the man. Schools became control factories. No one over 30 or over $30,000 was to be trusted. Leaders in business as in politics had a mobilized, motivated opposition who raised their share of legitimate questions. Soon enough, their gristle hardened into bone and a generation of anti-brand brands emerged. Ralph Nader, welcome. Thank you. Will you run for president as an independent Mm -hmm. in 2008? Let me put it in context to make it a little more palatable to people who have closed minds. Among them, Ralph Nader. His 1965 book, Unsafe at Any Speed, criticized unsafe automobiles, namely the Chevrolet Corvair, and put the world's automotive industry on notice. He mobilized an army of Nader Raiders including a young Ken Dryden, and would master the art of opposition through channels. Nader became a suit-and-tie warrior in a suit-and-tie world, challenging the giants with their own tools in their own language, which helps explain how it can take him 184 seconds to answer a point-blank question. And in that context, I have decided to run for president. Testing, testing. Since the 60s, two, three, a new generation of giant killers has arisen. Iconoclasts as disparate from one another as the establishment idols they seek to topple. Hi, I'm Michael Moore. In my hometown of Flint, Michigan, General Motors closed the factories and put 30,000 people out of work. To raise their spirits, I made this movie. Fire Roger, Smith. Roger and Me, his breakthrough film targeting GM chair Roger Smith, made a name for Michael Moore. When his criticism of America's gun culture, Bowling for Columbine, won an Oscar, hundreds of millions of viewers held their breath. That elects a fictitious president. We we live in a time where we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons, whether it's the fictition of duct tape or the fictitious of orange alerts. We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. And any time you've got the Pope of the 66 against you, your time is up. Thank you, Mr. Bush. The 1940s have been a decade of breakthroughs and developments in medicine and psychiatry. This is the era of Canada's Naomi Klein, whose book, No Logo, which, well, has its own logo, connected the modern craft of branding to the equally modern anti-globalization movement. Remaking people, shocking them into obedience. This is a story about that powerful idea. In the 1950s, it caught the attention of the CIA. Her 1997 book, Shock Doctrine, explores the idea that major changes in politics and society are most possible in times of disaster and crisis. I wanna keep my chicken livers, wanna keep my chicken wings. You can have my chicken fingers, cause there isn't such a thing. A chicken pox on you for wanting. Eat my thighs, you should try on somebody your own side. Some critics of big, such as Adbusters and People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, are themselves corporate bodies with heavy collective clout. This flourishing crop of anti-establishment critics grows from seeds of truth. Often, they expose inauthentic practices in governments, corporations, and major brands as opposed to an authentic company which follows through on its promises at any cost. It's a company that means what it says and says what it means. Managers of inauthentic brands are becoming easy to spot. They're in that giant conga line of CEOs hopping off to prison. Jeffrey Skilling, formerly of Enron, Baron Black of Cross Harbor, formerly of Hollinger. In years past, their cells had been well looked after by other fallen icons and authority figures, from Ehrlichman, Halderman, Colson and Liddy, to Jimmy Baker and Martha Stewart. Each provide a cautionary tale that people invest in brands and leaders. When Ben Johnson was stripped of Olympic gold, all of Canada ached. When Coca-Cola changed its formula, Even non-coke drinkers railed against the assault on a century-old tradition. So, is there a place for big brands in the age of persuasion? Oh, yeah. In a poll not too long ago, people were asked to suggest who should rewrite the Ten Commandments. Finishing second, after Mother Teresa, was Sir Richard Branson, chair of Virgin Group, a big brand that doesn't feel like a big brand, despite 2007 revenues of $20 billion. Its secret? Even the name of the company, started in university, is so anti-GE or GM or Exxon. Branson has personified his brand with an adventurous, impertinent, why not attitude an attitude that stretches across an empire including a music label, an airline, mobile network, wines, comics, cruises, and, oh yeah, radio stations. From the enemy, down, no. to the killers, to the police. <laughs> Virgin Radio, connect with music. Unlike so many corporate giants, Virgin grew up before our eyes. It became the contrarian in every category it entered. Virgin takes pain to apply its quirky brand to every point of contact with consumers, from customer support sites to in-flight safety videos and Branson himself. Well, I think what we have achieved today, the plane has just landed. Who is fearless about taking point when exploring ideas such as using biofuels in aviation, even proposing fuels made from algae instead of, say, coconuts. So no forests would need to be felled to create the necessary farmland. Um, And as a result, we now believe we can uh, develop uh, new biofuels for the future. And Virgin has, hands down, the best mission statement I've ever read. Everybody wants the next great thing, even us. So, we are a music store who became an airline, who became a soft drink company, who became over 200 different businesses all over the planet, united by one simple common thought. We want to do what's never been done before. We want to create stuff that's valuable and honest and is worth making in the first place. We want to have fun while we're doing it. And we want our competitors to find us really, completely irritating. Now, try to imagine those words coming from Royal Dutch Shell or Thompson Corp. Three, two, one, zero. Look, Only a company as quirky as Virgin would form Virgin Galactic, offering five minutes in space for a cool 200k. Only a company as shh, big as Virgin, could offer it. A strong, authentic, imaginative corporate culture can't be duplicated by rivals. As with Virgin, when it's infused in its staff, its products, its communication, and in everything it does, it ingratiates itself with the consumer. Trouble is, a great, authentic corporate culture is incredibly hard to create, and it's as delicate as a house of cards a bad hiring or a fragment of sour PR can trash a culture that had taken years to build. In his book, Punching In, author Alex Frankel went undercover working for five major companies. His conclusion, the two best, by far, were Apple and UPS. Among other things, he loved that Apple threw out the commission system in their stores because, quote, it polluted the buyer-seller relationship He loved that UPS, like Apple, let its employees be and think for themselves. Yet, the bigger the company, the harder that becomes. Even the little guys have to ride herd with their company's culture every minute of every day. Which prompts an interesting question. Does a brand have to be number one? Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. And I'm a Mac genius. A what? Brands like Mac are built on their status as underdogs, content to cycle in the draft of the leader. Could you imagine these Mac ads working if PC were the earnest underdog and Mac was the giant brand leader? What's pi to the fifth decimal? 3.14159. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do I loathe Mac? 11. Ooh, she's good. Very good. If being number one is such a rough gig, why bother? For one thing, the biggest brands often have the resources to win wars of attrition. Case in point, the Cold War, where the American strategy was not only to escalate the arms race, but also to bankrupt the Soviets while doing it. Big allows a company like Hewlett-Packard to fund a massive R&D division that filed some 5,000 patents in 2001, some 13 a day. The trade-off is an urge to stay the course, rather than risk bold forward steps, which explains why big brands rarely generate clever advertising and why more than half of the companies on the Fortune 500 list in 1980 are no longer in business. It can take climbers years of preparation and a lifetime of dreaming to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Yet many, including Edmund Hillary, remain only a few minutes. At best, others have remained for no more than a few hours. There, they quickly learn that the top of the world is also one of the planet's most hostile environments. And once there, the only possible direction is 8,800 meters down. It's a metaphor you needn't waste on today's biggest brands. The trouble with big is that, the bigger the brand, the more layers and factors there are pulling it away from its market. Hence the explosion of research companies today. Big brands actually need to hire third parties to help them understand their own customers. The other problem with big is that even though every large company starts as a small company, their unique culture is slowly lost as the business grows. It's the cruelest result of success. But if there are smart CEOs out there, these two details are the things that keep them up at night in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Canada's number two production team, Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. But they try harder. Engineer Keith Oman, a division of Oman Enterprises, a subsidiary of KO Entertainment Group, a holding of Big Sweet Enterprises, Viking Alberta. Title theme by me, Ari Posner. And me, Ian Lefebvre. Thank you for your support. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.